Um, if, if you are a guest or if you're fairly new to North Wake, uh, Jesus is pretty thick today. If you noticed in, in the lyrics, we, we long for him, we look for him, we exalt him, we count everything else but rubbish compared to him. And it'd be easy to kind of... a book of the Bible that helps us be as over the top about Jesus as is appropriate for who he is, and that's the book of Hebrews. We just started this series uh, last couple weeks, so if you'll open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, that's where we are, and today what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's, he's pressing us to see how great Jesus is, and what he does essentially is he looks around and says, what's the most exalted, glorious being that anyone could encounter in this world? And he says, that would be an angel, and he's going to say today, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the angels, and uh, that's not necessarily a category we think in, so I was trying to think, what, who would you say is perhaps the most exalted or powerful person around in our nation on the planet give me a couple options here go ahead feed me back i'm sorry it's okay you can say it who it's uh, loud because i can't hear you the pope the pope okay jesus is greater than the pope the writer of hebrews would say who else trump yes jesus is greater than trump I think, I think the offer of Hebrews would, would concur that. So, you know, he's done that. That's what he's doing. He's looking around for someone truly exalted in the eyes of the people of the day, and he's saying Jesus is greater. And so we could look at our president-elect, Donald Trump, and we would say Jesus is greater. And, and that's as close, a, that's the only time you'll ever hear Trump compared to an angel is in that little statement right there. Okay. Is that, what he's saying is that, Jesus is greater than the angels. When I went to seminary back in the dark ages, we had a class on angelology. It really did. Had a class on angelology, and we studied what the Bible had to say about angels and demons and, and such. Now, most of you, if you studied accounting or math or English, something like that, probably didn't have the luxury of a class on angelology. But not to worry. You can buy a book called Angels 101, An Introduction to Connecting, Working, and Healing with the Angels, written by metaphysician Doreen Virtue, Ph.D. And uh, in her book, she writes that that, uh, in contrast to the ideas of sin and guilt in some religious traditions, angels just love everybody. It's what angels do. They just love people. They help everyone who calls on them regardless of their religious faith or lack of it. They look past the surface, she says, and see the godliness within all of us. She says angels aren't judgmental. They only bring love into our lives. They're safe with the angels. You're safe with the angels, and you can totally trust them. And I swear this lady has a side job for Hallmark. Um, (laughs) Doreen Virtue lists the many ways that angels can be counted to assist people. For instance, you probably didn't know that angels can help you with your travel plans. She says, 
they help you get an extremely nice, warm, friendly, and competent customer service representative when calling an airline to book reservations. Angels can do that. She says they can help you avoid lines at check-in and work with sweet and competent personnel. Angels can let you sail through airport security without being searched. That, that's probably an archangel that has to, has, to do, has to do that one. They can protect and deliver your baggage so that your suitcases are the first ones on the luggage carousel. That ever happened? Angel. If that ever happened to you, is it? <laughs> Miss Virtue says it was an angel that did that for you. They make no demands on us. They want... They wait to be summoned to help us overcome every difficulty, she says. This lady's been on CNN. She's been on Oprah. She's been on The View. Her message is widespread and shared by many others who write metaphysically about angels. Um, she says, I've discovered that the quickest and most efficient route to happiness is through connecting with the angels. So whether you need help with your health, career, love life, family, or any other area, the angels can help you. And I don't even want to know how angels help you with your love life. But they can, according to, according to ironically, Miss Virtue. So, um, but if you don't want to lay out the cash for Doreen's book... Which, by the way, I'm not endorsing this book. It'd be a really good idea not to lay out cash for this book. Um, you can probably learn about angels from other sources in our culture, like, for instance, country western music. You can always learn about angels there. The main insight being that angels look a lot like beautiful women, at least in country western music, and that they help pour out the rain. That's what angels do. If that doesn't work for you, you can always peruse the Hallmark card rack, which has actual images of angels uh, featured on many of their cards. And um, typically, uh, chubby, almost naked angels with a bow and arrow and wearing diapers. And I have no idea why angels would wear diapers. C.S. Lewis complains about all this in his preface to his book, wonderful book, The Screwtape Letters. And he says that there is a progressively distorted picture of angels that's come down to us through religious art as well. Um, Angelica's angels, he says, carry in their face and, and gesture the peace and authority of heaven. But later come the chubby, infantile uh, nudes of Raphael. He says, in scripture, the visitation of an angel is always alarming. It, it has to begin, the angel does, by saying, fear not. He says the Victorian angel looks as if it was going to simply say something like, they're there. Um, so as you can imagine, um, the Bible paints a radically different portrait of angels than does our culture. Kent Hughes in his um, helpful volume on the book of Hebrews summarizes angels this way. It's good for us to get some good angelology today. He says, angels are mentioned over 100 times in the Old Testament, over 160 times in the New. They exist in vast numbers. Um, they're described in Revelation as a great throng, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels. In most cases, they are invisible to us, as was the Old Testament experience of Balaam, when the Lord had to open his eyes so he could see the angel blocking his way, or Elisha's servant who had his eyes open so he could see he was protected by encircling chariots of fire. Ordinarily, when angels become visible, he says, they have a human-like appearance and are sometimes mistaken for men. 
Other times they have shined with glorious light. They've appeared as fabulous winged creatures. Um, But the Hebrew and Greek words for angel simply mean messenger. Designating their essential functions, he says, as divine message bearers. And as God's messengers, they can wield immense power. For example, staying entire armies and delivering captives. And then he lists four functions that angels serve in the Bible broadly. The first is this. Angels continuously worship and praise the God they serve. Secondly, angels communicate God's message to men. They, they assisted in bringing the law. Um, they reveal the future to prophets like Daniel. Um, you remember they announced the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. Um, thirdly, they minister to believers in a variety of ways. The Psalms say things like, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Um, Psalm 91 says, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Angels have delivered people from prison. They rejoice at the conversion of sinners. They're present within the church. They watch the lives of believers with interest. They carry believers away at death to the place of blessedness. The angels minister to believers in many ways. And the fourth thing he says that's helpful is angels will be God's agents in the final earthly judgments and second coming. They will execute the judgment against Satan and his servants according to the book of Revelation. Encounters in the Bible with angels would cause people to fall on their face in terror. Or they would be inclined to fall on their face and worship them. Because angels are truly awesome. They are awe-inspiring beings. They are the most glorious thing that we would see in this world, probably, should we catch a glimpse of one um, in, its, in all of its glory. Now, as we study the rest of this chapter of the book of Hebrews today, that's the imagery we have to keep in our minds. Not the country western angel, not the hallmark angel, but the biblical, exalted, glorious messengers of God. Okay. Um, that's what we need to keep in mind. Um, and his point in, in these verses is really straightforward. It's this, Jesus is greater than the angels. That's his point. Think how glorious these angels are. Jesus is greater. Okay. Um, Jesus is far greater than any angel that you've seen. Now, if one of these angels appeared to you, how would you respond? You know, biblically, you'd probably fall down and be tempted to worship him or fall down in fear. But what if he came and gave you a message? If an angel appeared to you and gave you a message, you'd probably take that message very seriously. And the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is greater. So the question today is, are you listening to Jesus? Is he great in your life such that you obey and follow his words more than you would some angelic revelation? Because Jesus is greater. And he has spoken to us and his words are recorded for us in the very book that that we're studying in the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews is building a case that we really should listen to Jesus and follow him. And on top of this glorious um, perspective of angels, he is telling us that, that Jesus is greater. 
that these fall on your face, wipe out armies, I think maybe I should worship you kind of beings. Jesus is greater than them. And what he does today is he strings together a chain of seven Old Testament passages to prove to us that Jesus is greater than the angels. And so if you'll open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to um, Hebrews chapter 1. We'll dig in, starting about verse 4 or 5, and run to the end of the chapter, Lord willing. But pray with me first, would you please? Father, be kind to us now and help us. Um, Jesus surely is already less today than he should be in our eyes, so exalt him as great. Help us reorder our worlds rightly around this great Son of God who is Jesus, our Savior. So help us now by your word and your spirit, we pray. Amen. Okay. Now, I mentioned he uses seven Old Testament quotes. That's, that's the go-to source for the writer of Hebrews to prove to us who Jesus is and that he's greater than angels. And so we learn from his example that the Old Testament should be read. We're not New Testament people only. The Old Testament should be read, it should be trusted as God's word, and we should expect it to point us to Jesus, because it does all those things in the way he uses it um, today. So, there are four ways that he, used, that he establishes Jesus greater than us in these Old Testament passages. We'll look at all four of them. The first is this, Jesus' name is greater than the angels. Okay. Um, look at... A little bit of what we covered last week, back to verse 3, the latter part of the verse. Um, it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he says, Jesus did a work that angels couldn't do. He purified us from our sins. And then having finished that work, he sat in a place where angels cannot go. And that's at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Um, and as a result of that, Jesus' name, the name that he's given, is greater than the angels. As a reflection of his superiority of the angels, he's given a name or a title that's greater than anything any angel could ever hope to have. Your name is in the Bible, tends to function as your identity. Um, it's your essential nature. It can express rank and dignity. Some have suggested that the name that Jesus gets here is the name of God, Yahweh. Um, but I think as you read on in the verses that are going to follow, it makes most sense to me to think that the name or the title that Jesus gets here is that of Son, the, the Son of God. Um, in the Old Testament, there are times when angels are referred to collectively, like as a class of being, as sons of God. But there's never a time in the Old Testament when an angel is pointed out and given the title of the Son of God. Okay? That is unique to Jesus. Um, and that's the point of verse 5. Okay? It says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, the implied answer to that question, uh, which angel did he ever say this to, is that no angel. He never said that to an angel. 
This is language, this is a name, this is a title that could never be given merely to an angel. To be the Son of God was a title with great significance. It was a kingly title. Um, All this does kind of raise a question when he says things like, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Um, It makes you wonder, was there a time when the second person of the Trinity was not the son? And I'm inclined to say no, that we've always seen the Trinity, our, our one God in three persons, function as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, if you just went back a couple verses in the book of Hebrews to, to verse 2, you remember it says, in these last days, God, that be God the Father, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And the author of Hebrews is happy for the language of Son to be addressing the one who created the world so that he's always been son, even back before he was the creator. Um, You know, many churches sing something. The church of my childhood sang this. It's called the Glory Patri. Some of you may have heard of that. And it's a little, it's called the Lesser Doxology. It's ancient. And these are the words. I'm not going to sing it to you, but I will read you the words. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was, that is, as the Trinity was, um, evermore shall be, the Trinity will always be, world without end, beyond even the end of the world, they're saying. So this is how God was, and is, and is to come. The Son has always been, and always will be, the Son. The doxology declares that God has always been a Trinity, a loving community of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one in essence, one God in three persons. So Jesus didn't become the Son of God necessarily when he was born. He's always been the Son of God. Um, I like the way uh, the commentator William Lane puts it. He says this, he says, although Jesus was the preexistent Son of God, he entered into a new experience of sonship by virtue of his incarnation his sacrificial death, and his subsequent exaltation. And that's the emphasis in Hebrews 1. Jesus being exalted through his resurrection and his ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father. Jesus' name is greater than the angels. He has a name that is greater than theirs. He is God's unique son. And he rules over all as the king who fulfilled the promises that were made to King David long, long ago. John Piper really says it well. He says in Romans 1, verse 4, Paul says that Christ was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He has always been the Son of God, just like he's always been heir of all things, but when he, was made, when he made purification for sins and triumphed over death and Satan, Christ was declared Son of God and heir of all things on a new basis in a new way, and now he reigns as the God-man Jesus Christ. The Son of God, not only by his eternal right, but now by the right of this victory, his victory over sin and death. He is Son of God in manifest power by the resurrection. Jesus is greater than the angels because his name is greater than the angels. The next point he makes is that Jesus' honor is greater than the angels. Um, That'd be one way to put it. Look at verse 6 and 7 with me. It says, um, again... 
when he, when, when God brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, he's probably quoting Deuteronomy here, but it could be another psalm. Um, when he says he brings the firstborn into the world, that firstborn is Jesus. He's talking about when he brings Jesus into the world, that could refer to his incarnation, but that could also refer to his resurrection and his exaltation. So the world there is not this world, but the heavenly world. It's used uh, sometimes in, in Hebrews that way, and that seems to be what's going on here. So he talks about the exaltation of Jesus. And in Jesus being exalted to the right hand of God, we see glimpses of what that's like. And the angels are worshiping like mad. Okay? Revelation 5 uh, describes it. I looked, I heard around the throne where God and the Lamb are, where Christ and the Father are, the Son and the Father, and living creatures and elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands Saying with a loud voice, the next verse says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus' honor is greater than the angels. He has such greater honor than the angels that God the Father commands the angels here to worship the Son. Who gets worship in the Bible? There's only one person that gets worship in the Bible, right? That's God. And so when God says, worship the, my firstborn son, who is Jesus, he is declaring Jesus to be God in the flesh. And then back in verse 7, he says that he portrays the angels as winds and fires. Um, and again, I think he's implying their exalted state as messengers and couriers for God. Um, they're glorious messengers. Um, there's an instance in the Old Testament, in Judges 13, where um, angels have appeared to uh, Manoah and his wife, and then at the altar, there's flame went up towards heaven from the altar, and the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar, and now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. Okay, again, it's that overpowering imagery of the beauty and the glory of these angelic beings who are just ministering spirits. They're just messengers of God. They are not sons. I like what Kent Hughes says. He says, angels, God's servants, may at his request take on wondrous forms, become seraphim, 30 feet high or men 300 feet high and perform feats beyond not only the capacity but the imagination of mankind. But they're still servants. Jesus is the eternally enthroned, anointed, sovereign king. Okay. Jesus is greater than the angels because Jesus' honor is greater than the angels. And as such, the angels, along with us, are commanded by God to worship him. And they do it gladly. John Piper said that um, worshiping Jesus is a huge issue. 
it separates Christianity from Judaism on one side and Islam on the other side and from cults like the Caesar cult in the early centuries that killed Christians for not worshiping Caesar and from the Jehovah Witnesses today that say Jesus is an archangel. All of these religions say Jesus is not to be worshiped and that is understandable unless the Son of God is God and Hebrews says he is. He is. So in the next few verses, the author brings out even more citations from the Psalms um, <clears throat> to prove that Jesus is greater than the angels this time because we could say Jesus' existence is greater than the angels. Look, um, verse 8 through 12, it says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So he's quoting more Psalms, loves the Psalms. They show Christ beautifully. And the author of Hebrews is just lining up Psalm after Psalm after Psalm to show us. And Psalm 45 where this is from, was written for the enthronement of a king. And the author of Hebrews applies this to God's son, calling him God, another indicator of the, the deity of, <clears throat> of Jesus. Um, John MacArthur has a good saying about the attachment between sonship and deity. He says that in John 5, 18, says that they sought the death penalty against Jesus, charging him with blasphemy because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also that he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. In that culture, <clears throat> MacArthur says, a dignitary's adult son was deemed equal in stature and privilege with his father. The same deference demanded by a king was afforded to his adult son. The son was, after all, of the very same essence of his father, heir to all the Father's rights and privileges, and therefore equal in every significant regard. So when Jesus was called Son of God, it was understood categorically by all as a title of deity, making him equal with God and, more significantly, of the same essence as his Father. That's precisely why the Jewish leaders regarded the title Son of God as high blasphemy. And so the Son who is God, is described as a just and righteous king who loves what is right and hates what is wicked and will reign forever. Okay? And that's, that's an idea that he's going to reign forever that he continues to press in the next couple of verses. Look at verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. Now he's talking about the sun, and he says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So the focus here shifts from the son as king to the son as creator. He made it all. He made the foundations of the earth. He made the heavens. They're all the work of the son's hands. And this echoes what we've already seen in Hebrews, right? 
If you go back to verses 2 and 3, it says, In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the creator of all things, and that includes the angels. They are created beings by the Son. He makes all things, and he is distinct from all things. Verse 11 and 12 make that clear. All things that he's created will perish, but you, applied to the Son, will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Okay. Just like your favorite pair of socks or slippers wear out, but you don't, you keep on going after those, he says that the, the creation the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth is like a garment. It's going to wear out. But you, God, the sun, will not. Age does not weary the sun. The years do not weaken him. And so what's true about God is applied to his son here without question. You know, when I, I remember... Um, my dad got me my first car, which was a 1968 Mercury Montego, Landau roof. They didn't even, even do that anymore. It's like they ran out of vinyl and they only did half the roof, you know. But it was fine because it was a car and I was 16. And I can remember my dad uh, worked, he ran a shop. Um, him and my uncle ran a car shop together. And so he knew cars inside and out. He could look at a bolt and tell you what millimeter it was or what, in those days, what inch it was. Just by looking. I would have to randomly try them. And so I can remember just standing there watching my dad work on cars. He didn't bother to have me work on my own car because the mechanic gene skipped a generation. And so I remember watching my dad. And it was like an artist. He, he just could work with cars remarkably. Uh, eventually, I moved away from the Midwest where we lived, ended up in Texas, and uh, had no money, so I was in a place where I had to work on my own car, do my own brakes. Um, remember installing a cruise control on a car, um, and I was out of my depth, and so I would either call my dad and have him talk me through it, or I would wait until he came down and, and have him help me with it. And so we did that for a while, but then after a while, um, Dad had come to visit, and uh, his knees just couldn't bear getting down to work on those cars anymore. And it had been 20 years since he had professionally worked on a car, and cars had changed a lot. And so he used to just kind of point and tell me what to do, and eventually I'd call him up and he'd say, you know, Larry, I just don't know. It's been too long. And, uh, you know, that's where we're all headed. We are going to wear out like a garment used to be a time when I was bigger and faster and stronger than all three of my sons. Not so much anymore. That's, that is not the case anymore. I've just convinced my youngest son, probably my biggest son, uh, that, that chopping wood is good cross-training for football. It's a glorious thing. Because I don't chop much wood anymore. But he loves to, loves to do that. Um, Christ is not like that. He is as strong and as wise and as merciful and as great 
now to you as he was for Peter and Andrew and John. Paul, Mary, Martha. We could go back before he was even incarnate. We could say he's, he's exactly as trustworthy now and as powerful now as he was to King David or to Abraham or to Moses. Okay. Christ, he does not wear out like a garment. He is the same and his years will never end. The world will perish, okay. but not Christ. Jesus is greater than the angels because Jesus' existence is greater than the angels, he says. He reigns forever as king, the creator of all things unchanging. And you can trust him today to be just as trustworthy and strong on your behalf as did Peter and Paul and John and Mary and Martha and Moses and David and all the heroes of our faith. He still reigns as king. He's not done. He's got one more reason he wants to press us with for us to recognize the greatness of Jesus with respect to angels. And we could say it this way. Jesus' status is greater than the angels. We've already seen this, and he's going to drive it home once more in the last two verses, verse 13 and 14. To which of the angels has, has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Okay, the implied answer is no angels. God has never said that to an angel. Instead, he says, angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? So he's quoting one last time from the Psalms. He quotes Psalm 110. This is a psalm that's alluded to more than a half a dozen times in Hebrews. And uh, scholars say it's the most quoted passage from the Old Testament in the new. And it's another one of those passages that exalts the Son, the Messiah, as king. Um, indicating that even the angels will never reign with God, as will the Son. He uniquely has that place. You know, the most exalted of angels are said to be able to stand in God's presence. But no angel is ever said to sit at God's right hand on a throne. One writer said that the throne next to God is the throne of God. Okay. Christ is exalted there as God and all his enemies will be put under his feet and all will bow including the angels. In Philippians chapter 2 we read it says, therefore God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. So angels are part of that, in heaven, and those who are described as being under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For the angels are ministering spirits, sent by God for the sake of those who would inherit salvation. So the, the role of angels is really noble. Okay. It does not necessarily involve getting through airport security and avoiding lines at check-in. But it does involve, in some mysterious way, helping us inherit salvation, helping us believe and stay in that belief. The angels help us with that. Okay. And yet... 
though they do that noble work, Jesus is greater. He is greater than the angels. Here's some those contrasts spelled out by, by John Piper again. He says, Jesus is sitting as a king. The angels are sent as servants. There is only one king. There are many servant angels. They are servants of Christians, those who by faith are inheriting salvation. But Christ is the king over Christians, king over the church, and angels do his bidding for the church. So he's far above these serving angels, these ministering spirits. So this is what we've seen. Jesus' name is greater than the angels. Jesus' honor is greater than the angels. Jesus' existence is greater than the angels. His status is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the angels. Okay? Jesus is greater. And in these verses, the author of Hebrews has strung together all of these Old Testament verses to help us see why it is that Jesus is greater than the most majestic being we would probably ever see in this world if we were given a glimpse. Even the great angels, the ones who guarded the Garden of Eden and defeated armies in the Old Testament, who threw open prison doors for the Apostle Paul, who stand in the presence of God and worship around his throne, Jesus is greater. The question is, is Jesus treated as greater in your life? Do his words have that authority? Do you revere them? Do you honor them? Do you hope in him? Do you listen to him? Do you obey him? There's a prayer that's been attributed to a Muslim convert to Christ. He works at a shop of a man named Muhammad, no longer follows the prophet Muhammad. This is how it goes. Oh God, I am Mustafa the tailor and work at the shop of Muhammad. The whole day long I sit and pull the needle and the thread through the cloth. Oh God, you are the needle and I am the thread. I am attached to you and I follow you. When the thread tries to slip away from the needle, it becomes tangled and must be cut so it can be put back in the right place. Oh God, help me to follow you wherever you lead me, for I am really only Mustafa the tailor and I work in the shop of Muhammad on the great square. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, let, let not thy word, O Lord, become a judgment upon us that we hear it and do it not, that we believe it and obey it not. So have mercy on us through your Son, Jesus, greater than the angels. We pray in his matchless name. Amen.